You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Art of Living Well podcast. In this episode, Father Ian is kind of rapid fire answering some questions about contemplation, purgatory, ad orientum, Latin mass, charismatic renewal, and more. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Father Ian Van Houston here. I just wanted to jump on and go a little bit live and answer some questions uh, that I'd gotten from some a particular person. And I love questions. Um, I'm not always able to answer them in a timely way, but keep those questions coming and I'll try as best as possible to jump online and answer them. I like to answer them for everybody because I think a lot of times they're great questions, really kind of provoke interesting conversations. So the first question that I received that I want to address was about contemplative prayer. And so they said, can a person hope to go to heaven if they never reach succeeding contemplative prayer? This is a great question. So actually think of it more this way. Think of it in terms of purgatory. Now, this is going to be my view. Um, I don't have this officially. I can back it up with sources. I could back it up. Um, and it would be a view that I think is acceptable. Um, there might be people who disagree with that. I don't know. But here goes. Here's my view on it. And here's my my educated, researched opinion on the subject, which is, contemplative prayer is that distance between us and the unconditional love of the Father. That is, that the more we enter into contemplation, it teaches us unconditional love, divine love in the depths of our hearts. Not human love, not our the emotion of love, but the deeper font of, of, of surrendering completely to the Father and to being able to do what is good, true, and beautiful for other people. So, Think of it this way. When you receive your salvation through the grace offered in the sacraments, when you make an act of faith. Now, sometimes we receive it through baptism, but let's say we were baptized as an adult. We receive our salvation. There's still the wounds of sin. Even though we are saved, there's a healing that has to take place in our heart. And St. Paul alludes to this. And the more that we surrender to that healing, the more we're free to love. Now, this is what we learn primarily in contemplative prayer and in vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplative prayer. That is, we learn to overcome the work of the enemy so as to love. That it, oh, my microphone just moved. I got to, sorry about that. So we learn to love as God has loved. So what I would say is see it as a ladder. So as long as you're on the ladder, you're saved. But some people ascend higher on the ladder and others lower. This ladder of divine ascent, is uh, is a language that a lot of the, the contemplative writers use and a lot of the mystics use, is to think of the spiritual journey as climbing a ladder. So the question would be, is and also, by the way, according to the degrees in which we love, there's a hierarchy within heaven, according to Aquinas. A good way to look at this and to, uh, to imagine it is actually Dante's Paradiso. Dante gives a, a, a whole structure to heaven, and that is those who ascend to the highest are those who have conformed the most to God's grace and what I would call mystical union, what the tradition calls mystical union, as well as contemplative prayer. So we reach higher by the more we learn to enter into contemplation. Now, this doesn't mean that contemplatives are always automatically higher on the scale than other people. It really means it's the question is, how much do we surrender to God's love? How much do we send, surrender to the gift of grace? And not everybody does that in the same proportion. Now, everything that keeps us from entering into heaven in the sense of purgatory says once we've earned our salvation, there's the, the deep disorder of sin that needs to be healed. So we have to spend time in purgatory. 
So all of us in a certain sense are undergoing purgatory in this world. And the extent to which we conform to purgatory in this world helps us in the next. So that's the first question. Next question. By celebrating Mass at Orientum, does it eliminate the need for the laity to participate? So for those who haven't been following, I'm now celebrating the Mass at Orientum here at ECU Newman. Um, you can see photos of that and stuff like that. Um, and so they're asking about participation. It seems to be, um, so the reason some people choose to celebrate the Mass this way is that it eliminates the need for the laity to participate. I think there's a few ways we can understand participation. And this was something that was discussed at length in our theology classes at my seminary. First, we can talk about participation outwardly. That is, that we participate by doing something. Um, and so in this sense, this view, I think, which is slightly erroneous, is the laity need to do as many things as possible within the liturgy. Now, I think it's good to have readers. I think it's good to have altar servers. I think it's good that we now are saying the dialogues, whereas in the past it was more the altar servers. I, I do believe in those reforms. But to reduce participation to simply exterior criteria is very limited. The next kind of participation is that we all participate in the Mass by virtue of our baptism. That is, we are integrated into the body of Christ. Even if we go to Mass and we sit there and do nothing, we are participating in the fact that we join our sacrifices with the sacrifice of the Mass. We participate primarily in our sacramentally according to our identity, that we're integrated and incorporated into the body of Christ. Now, of course, this needs to be made fruitful, and so another dynamic with participation is our interior disp disposition. So we talk about with the sacraments, we say they're effective according to the, the operas operandi. I'm getting the Latin a little bit wrong. According to the work of the work, I forget exactly how to phrase it. But the idea is, is that when you're baptized, the sacrament confers grace. If As long as it's validly bapt uh, you're validly baptized, for it to be fruitful, that depends on the disposition of the receiver and the disposition of the celebrant. So if you go to a terrible mass with terrible preaching, as long as it's valid, you receive the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the important principle with the sacraments. Now, the fruitfulness in our participation is our interior disposition. And that changes, as going back to contemplation and purgatory, the more we're purged of the effects of sin, the more we're able to participate in the Mass mystically. That is, we enter into the mystery. Now, the exterior can aid the interior and vice versa. But to reduce participation simply to the exterior is the fault that Vatican II, at least according to the theologians that formed me, was trying to overcome. That participation has, there has to be a deeper quality of understanding participation in the Mass. So, long story short, ad orientum doesn't take away from the participation of the laity. It assists in it because it orients the liturgy towards the Father through the Son and the unity of the Holy Spirit. When the priest is offering the prayers to the Father, he's offering them in union with the people, and the people should be joining their sacrifice, participating. Now, also, I do like with the new Mass, which is a big reason why I don't exclusively celebrate the Latin Mass. In fact, I haven't celebrated Latin Mass yet. I love the Latin Mass. I love the richness of it. But I absolutely 100% agree with the reforms of Vatican II, the vernacular. Also, um, I, I, I believe that the singing and things like that, the, the allowance to allow people to use their talents within the liturgy as lectors and stuff, I think those are, those are good qualities. Extraordinary Ministers of Holy Communion, that's a little bit of a different subject. 
I have mixed feelings about that. I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing, but I have mixed feelings about that. But I would say that I, I, I love the – actually, I love what I've been doing at ECU Newman, which is ad orientum, novus ordo, with good music, um, whether it be praise and worship or traditional music or whatever, but with good music – um, good quality music that's not sappy, that's not distracting, but leads to contemplation, which even when we do praise and worship, like Dana, Catherine, and when the students do it, they've learned that art of meditation. It's powerful to see the missionaries and the students. They've really understood the meditative quality of church music and, and playing in the liturgy. And so we've had that orientation. So before I sign off, let me check the comments, see if there's any comments. Okay, there's no comments so far. I think that's it. Now, actually, the, the, a person also asked, a few people have asked about uh, the, the whole stuff with the, the Latin mass. And, and so one of the big things right now is in each generation, there's a dominant movement that I would say has big influence on the church. Now, traditionalism, is a, I would describe it as a movement, has been around since the reforms of the Vatican II. In some forms, it's been negative um, with with certain aspects of it. It's been a, a, a denial of the Second Vatican Council. I think there's also a healthy side of it, uh, a kind of folks that saw that the uh, theology of rupture is what it's sometimes called was not healthy. That is, some people said, now we get rid of all of the old and we got to remake everything new and we got to experiment. And really, I would hold the position of Pope Benedict and others which is to properly understand the Second Vatican Council is to understand it in continuity with the past. And, and a lot of people have been talking about that lately. Now, with, um, with uh, so where was I going with this? So I would say another movement similar is the charismatic renewal. See, with, with movements, the way movements often work is that they excite, they excite a core group that are very committed to the movement. So with the charismatic renewal, there were many vocations that came out of it. There were people that were very excited. And then sometimes there was uh, aberrations and there was problems when this excited core would try to convince everybody that they should be charismatic. I think the same dynamic can happen sometimes within the traditionalist movement. That is when folks who love the Latin mass and love the traditional stuff believe that everybody should feel the way they do about things and really trying to understand that often out of these kinds of movements and these kind of these things is where a lot of vocations come and a lot of real fruitfulness and faithfulness comes. The charismatic renewal, I think there's definitely things to disagree with. Um, I'm not sure I always 100% buy it, but I've seen great fruitfulness out of the charismatic renewal. I've also seen great fruitfulness out of the traditionalist Latin mass kind of movement. So for me, I try to support what is legitimate within the church. That is, I try to meet people where they're at and try to help them to overcome the work of the enemy through spiritual direction, through confession, through piety, through meditation, through contemplation. So answer those questions, hopefully. Um, let me know what you think. If you have more questions, um, I'll, I can jump back on maybe in a few days. We'll have to figure out when I'll jump back on again. But it was good to see everybody.